following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're focusing today on Romans 10.4, which tells us, Trusting Jesus and His finished work ends our attempts to be accepted by our futile works. And that's news that should thrill our hearts. If you love Jesus, you love this. Please please, um, stand with me if you're able to. I'm going to read God's word. We we stand in honor of God's word. We believe it is authoritative. It's binding on our consciences. We believe it is inerrant, inspired, and infallible. And it is our privilege now to read it publicly. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." And Lord, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have ever wondered if Jesus is sufficient, if he is adequate, if he is enough, this is about Christ's total sufficiency. Verse 4 tells us that Christ is the end of the law. He's the result, the purpose, completion, the goal, uh, the, the goal line of the race, the pursuit that we've been seeing for righteousness, for being put right with God. To everyone who believes, to everyone who believes with no distinction amongst those who believe. Last time we looked at the first four verses, we really focused on the first three the most, but we saw Paul's heart desire. We saw that he wanted people to be saved by Christ, and and he wanted them to be saved so much that he prayed for their salvation. This is us. When, When we're a believer, we want people to be saved, and we pray that they would be saved. But we also saw the misguided zeal and ignorant pride of those who are rejecting Christ. So as we're wanting them to be saved, and as we are praying that they would be saved, they are are misguided and ignorant, and and they don't believe in Christ. But then verse 4 tells us about the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ is all-sufficient. And today what I want us to do as we're thinking about this is really explore two primary relationships. And this verse, this one verse, uh, looks at both of those. First, Christ's relationship to the law, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Second, our relationship to Christ, to everyone who believes. So we'll look first at Christ's relationship to the law, secondly at our relationship to Christ, and really that's our outline for today. We'll look at this one verse. First, Christ's relationship to the law. The verse says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ, it starts with him. He's the Messiah, the Redeemer, the promised deliverer, the prophesied one. And it says that he is the end of the law. Now, a lot of people misunderstand the law. If you lined 10 Christians up and said, hey, tell me what the law is, you're going to get 10 different answers. 
A lot of people misunderstand the law, and it is sort of confusing. The word law in the New Testament has several different meanings dependent upon the context and what it's referring to. It can refer to the whole Old Testament. In Romans 3.19, it refers to the whole Old Testament. There's quotations from the Psalms and prophets and others. It can also refer to part of the Old Testament. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. But it can also refer to the first five books of the Old Testament. And that's what verse 4 is referring to. Uh, The first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses called the Torah. And the question before us really is, how is Christ the end of the law for righteousness? Now, if you wonder how important this verse is, this is one of the most debated and disputed verses in all of Paul's letters. And it really hinges, the debate and the dispute hinges on one word, the word end. It's the Greek word telos. It has different meanings in different contexts. It can mean to cease or terminate something. It can mean goal. It can mean fulfillment or culmination. And all of these things are true about Jesus as it relates to the law, but what is this verse saying about Jesus as it relates to the law? It is true that Jesus is the aim of the law, that he is the goal to which the law leads. The, the law led to him. Galatians tells us it's our tutor to lead us to Christ. He is the fulfillment of the law. Christ fulfilled the law, as he said in Matthew 5, 17. But he is also the termination of the law, and that's what this means here in verse 4, that he is the termination of the law for righteousness. Now, don't forget the for righteousness part. And the idea is that no one could keep the law perfectly except for Christ. And Jesus did that, so stop all your trying to make yourself right with God by your works. Here, end means cease in an experiential sense, and it's responding to the error that was explained in verse 3. It says that they were ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness by faith in Christ. And so they didn't submit to God's righteousness, they didn't submit to Christ, and it says here that Christ is the end of the law. So those who trust in Christ cease using the law to establish their own righteousness. Verse 3 tells us they were still trying to do that. They were on this lifelong pursuit to be made right with God based upon a job description they wrote up for themselves, not one that God gave them. So he is the end of the law. Now that doesn't mean that the law was done away with. The law still exists. The law is an ongoing expression of God's holy character and what God requires. Everyone has to face the law. The Bible's very clear about it. Jews and Gentiles alike. In fact, it says in in Romans 2.14 that Gentiles have the law written on their heart. They didn't have the first five books of the Old Testament, but their conscience was either accusing or excusing them. The idea is that everyone is subject to the law of God. Everyone is subject to God's righteousness and his holiness in his standards. And so, Everyone is subject because everyone has to face the righteousness of God, his holiness, and what he requires. Don't ever say that the law has been abolished with the coming of Christ. He said, I didn't come to abolish it. Never say that God doesn't care about the law. He demands his standards from everyone. 
We should never say that the law was abolished with the coming of Christ. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he perfectly fulfilled the law's demands. So that all who believe in Christ, all who put their trust in him, are covered by his perfect keeping of God's standards. You see law and grace in contrast in the Bible. Law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. But the law is terribly misunderstood. Everyone is judged by the law. It isn't that you're just judged by whether or not you believe in Jesus. You are judged on the standard of God's law, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, Christians are not under the law. You're not following the law. But Christians want to obey God's standards. Because Christ fulfilled the law and and saves a believer, we love him who saved us, and we live with a grateful heart. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands, you will obey me. You are judged on the standard of God's law. Christians are not under law, but under grace, and that's the point of 10.4. Christ is the end of you working your way to God. So if you're a believer, Christ is the end of the law for you. And by the way, Christians indwelt by the Spirit of God are the only ones who can live pleasing to God. That should never make you proud. It should make you very humble. We aren't living antinomian. We aren't saying, well, I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter what I do. Don't trample on the grace of God. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The law was never meant to save. It was just meant to show how unrighteous we are. That's why it still stands. It's still showing everyone how unrighteous they are. I mean, think about it. People who aren't saved, proud mankind, that was me before I was saved, proud mankind really, really wants to be his own savior. He really thinks he can do it. And he won't give up until he finds out he is really helpless to help himself. And now you learn this by a string of really awful uh, aggregate collection of failure. You, the, the multitude of magnified missteps on your part combines to show you your utter helplessness due to your utter depravity. This is what the law shows you. And here you have foolish, frail, fallen mankind thinking he could keep the law and make himself right with God. In fact, so proud, so foolish that he says, well, you know, I'm just going to add a lot more rules to the mix. Not just what God said in the word, but we're going to add some more things on our own. And then you've got a guy like Paul, who speaks of himself, you know, in the past tense about when he was not a believer. And he said, as to the law, I was blameless. That means that all his unbelieving compatriots at the time would have said, that guy's going to heaven. That guy's so good. That guy's so holy. That guy's so righteous. And it was all an outward show. He didn't have a changed heart. He wasn't believing in the Messiah. It wasn't salvation by grace through faith in the Messiah when Paul said, I was blameless according to the law. He was trusting in his own works. And by the way, the only kind of salvation there has ever been, there's only one kind of salvation. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You couldn't keep the law and save yourself because every single person 
can't keep the law. It took someone perfect. It took Jesus Christ, the God-man. Only God declares or pronounces anyone righteous. Only God credits righteousness to anyone. What happens is mankind pronounces himself righteous or pronounces someone else righteous and they're just speaking into the air. It's a farce. It's a fable. It's false. A mankind trying to earn his way to eternal life is, is the most foolish of pursuits. I should know. I did that for almost 20 years. It's not anchored in reality. It's like taking a, a mind-bending puzzle that can't be solved and saying, I'm going to keep trying and trying and trying and then you keep failing and failing and failing. It's like trying to do pole vault and you cannot, you, you cannot uh, launch yourself. You have no ability. It's like you trying to do the, the high jump and you have no hops. <laughs> you have no chance of succeeding. It's like you trying to do the high jump with really bad knees and you're like, I'm going to jump seven feet. No, you're not. You have to be deluded to think that. It's like you trying to jump over the Grand Canyon. It's like you trying to, to fly by flapping your arms. How's that working for you? Wouldn't you have to be seriously deluded and deceived to think that you could do any of those things? And here it is. The person who thinks that they can work themselves to God is seriously deluded and deceived and, and, and they're blinded by Satan, as the Bible says. They're deceived, and, and that's, that's the case of the person who thinks they can work their way to God and be okay. This is why we need the law. This is why the law still stands. This is why Christ upholds the law. This is why Paul says we establish the law. We want to keep it in its rightful place. Don't try to work your way to God with the law. Let it point you to Christ. The law is to lead people to Christ, to show us our need. Why were there so many first century Jews that were rejecting Christ the Messiah? Romans 9 asks, answers it from the vantage point of God's sovereignty, God chose only some for salvation. That's what Romans 9 told us very clearly. And Romans 10 tells us, humanly speaking, from man's standpoint, well, the Jews rejected Christ because they followed Moses' law by works. They didn't follow God by faith. Here you had God's scriptural law revealed and it was revealing his righteousness. You had a sacrificial system that was showing you you couldn't keep the demands and the commands. You couldn't justify yourself by doing that. But what the Jews did is they said, no, we're going to take this and make a system of works righteousness. We're going to set up a job description for ourselves to work as hard as we can. We're going to add things to the mix even, and we're going to make ourselves righteous with God. That was never the intent of the law. R.C. Sproul said, God did not give the law as a way to attain status in his family. It shows God's perfect righteousness and our sin. The law sends us rushing to the cross and running for grace. That's what the law does. So Christ does not make the law irrelevant. The law pointed past itself to Christ. It was designed to lead us to the one who can give us the righteousness it required. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 
130 says, our righteousness. He became sin for us, right? The sinless one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Sinless one, sovereign one. No one else could do this. Galatians 4.4 says, Christ was born of a woman, born under the law. He who was over the law, who gave the law, also orchestrated everything about its fulfillment. Only someone who was completely over the law could do anything to the law. Early church father Irenaeus said, how is Christ the end of the law if he is not also the cause of it? How did Christ fulfill the law? He came into the world Not as God only, but as God and man. Under the law, his incarnation demanded it. He couldn't do it unless he was also man. Fully God and fully man. Sinless and subject to the law. When he was baptized by John the Baptist, John tried to flip it and say, No, Jesus, you need to baptize me. And Jesus said, No. Permit it to be done to fulfill all righteousness. You've got the Father saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. He fulfills everything perfectly. And He identified with us, lived a life of perfect obedience to the law, and He didn't stop at that. He went to the cross. This is why He came to earth. As 2 Timothy tells us, to die for sinners. Because the demands of the law had to be met. We are guilty before the law. The law demands blood sacrifice. He took our guilt. He shed his blood. He dealt with the demands of the law with regard to our transgressions. On the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve for our sins against a holy God. He received our death so that we could receive his life. All the bowls of the wrath of God were poured out on him instead of us. He did it in our place as our substitute. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. The offering was accepted by God. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God where he presently intercedes for us. He is returning. And unless we produced every demand of the law, we were dead. But for every believer, Christ fulfilled every demand for us. Therefore, we can be saved. Therefore, the law has nothing against us. This is how he is the end of the law. No longer are we indicted by the law. Christ answered it for us. The law spoke of him. In Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus, and he runs into two people that were slightly confused and he said oh foolish ones slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said in John 5, 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And go with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 begins by Paul saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly betrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And he's writing to a a group of people that started to think that they needed to earn their way to God. And he's like, wait a minute. That's not how you got saved. The righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now look with me at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean, Paul says. The law which came 430 years afterwards. Now, you go back to verse 7 of Galatians chapter 3. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Before the law came in, in fact, 430 years before. In fact, he says in verse 18, if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Look at verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Christ alone is the end of the law for righteousness because no one else could fulfill the law. We read that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. All mankind fails. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 8.3 says what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The Bible tells us, Romans tells us, there is none righteous, no, not one. Adam failed and everyone sins except for Christ, the God-man. So the moment you, you realize the demands of God's holy law and that you cannot meet them, it drives you to the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Proud man wants to save himself, someone wrote. He believes he can do it. And he will not give over the task till he finds out his own helplessness by unhappy failures. The problem is, when you find out your own helplessness through unhappy failures, sometimes you keep trying really hard not to turn to Christ. Because proud man keeps exalting himself above God. It happens every day of the week, every week of the year. It happens in every decade and every century. It happened again this week on the, on the world stage when the New York Times 
published an article that blasphemously stated that God must not have known everything and must not be all-powerful and must have sinned. Because there is no limit in the world of man to those who will attribute sin to God. And by the way, it is understandable and it is an expected travesty due to man's sinful depravity. This is the way things are. Don't be surprised when mere mortals rail against immortal, invisible, God-only wise. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And that doesn't mean they don't have a brain. They might be the smartest person in the room. It means they lack a moral compass. It means they've rejected God's moral compass. So you, got, you just got humanity railing against God. And it was their and our wretched sin that sent Jesus to earth to be born as a baby and to perfectly fulfill all righteousness and to go to the cross to die in our place. What did he say at the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But that doesn't let them off the hook. It doesn't let off, us off the hook. The Jews misunderstood. The Gentiles misunderstand. What did the Jews do? They divorced the law from its foundation in faith. They ignored dependence on the Spirit of God. They turned the commandments into a job description on how to earn salvation. That was never the intent. They twisted the law into legalism. There is no Greek word for legalism, so when Paul wants to refer to this distortion of the Mosaic law, he uses the phrase, works of the law. He, he says, by the works of the law shall no one be justified in God's sight. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We need the law. Oh, how we need the law. It still exists, it still stands because it points people to the only Savior. The law shows us our need for Christ, our utter inability to save ourselves. It shows us our sin. It shows us our utter helplessness. It shows us our need for cleansing and forgiveness that only Jesus gives. It was given to lead us to Christ like the wind blowing a ship into a harbor like a sheepdog driving the flock to the shepherd, like law enforcement officers arresting wrongdoers. Sin was our prison. The law says everyone is condemned, and there is only one remedy. The Lord Jesus Christ. One answer. Not many. One answer. Look to Christ alone. This first point in this verse, you see Christ's relationship to the law. He is the end of the law for righteousness. Don't keep working your way to God. But I want you to notice the last phrase in this verse, which shows our relationship to Christ. It says, to everyone who believes. That just draws a line down the middle of humanity and separates us into two distinct groups. There's everyone who believes, and there's everyone who does not. To everyone who believes and to no one else is Christ the end of the law for righteousness. This verse answers all modern heretics. It, it answers all false teachers, all blasphemers. There is no universalism taught in the Bible. 
Everyone deserves hell, real hell, and only Jesus saves. He is the only real Savior. There are not many roads to God. Jesus is the only way. Those who do not believe are under the wrath of God. Uh, People will tell you as as the day is long that God loves everyone and we're all going to be saved. There is no universalism. The people will tell you, you just have to be good enough. That's baloney. And I've seen how that's made. We have a relative who owns a, a meat company in Tennessee. I've seen how baloney's made. I've actually seen how lower than baloney is made. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. People will come up with all sorts of ideas about what's going to happen in the future and they'll tell themselves lies so they don't have to face reality. They tell themselves lies to comfort themselves. Verse four says, if you believe. This is for those who believe. If you're not believing and you say, well, I'm just gonna try as hard as I can. Well, any righteousness you might be able to drum up, any goodness you might be able to draw up, uh, that's like filthy rags, the Bible says. You're under the curse of the law. You have no hope. You have no standing whatsoever. You might be the best citizen on your block, the smartest person in your office, the, the best citizen in your class. You might be very proper. You might be a very moral person. It is useless before God. Stop trying. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Cease from your works. Rest in Christ's finished work. Believe the song, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. Christ worked for your salvation so you wouldn't have to. You can't bypass the death of Christ on the cross. That's the crux of the issue. You hit a crossroads when you get to the cross. But Look with me at Hebrews 4 verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What is this talking about? This is talking about faith in Jesus Christ, the only Savior. You go with me to chapter 3, right above this. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, As the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice. Go to verse 1 of chapter 4. The promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news. We're talking about the gospel here. Good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Anyone who refuses to believe does not enter the rest of God.
verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And, and by the way, there are people running all around, to and fro, in a scur- in a scurrying around, trying to hear the voice of God apart from the word of God. You want to hear the voice of God? Open up the word of God. Hebrews 3 and 4 proves that his voice is his word. Look at Hebrews 4.12. Let us, uh, verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's talking about listening to God's gospel. Stop trying. Stop working so hard to... Get yourself saved. Cease from your works. Rest in Christ. Christ is the end of you working for your salvation. Galatians 2.21 says, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Gospel preaching must address the demands of and satisfaction of the law. Or it's false. Gospel preaching must address the demands and satisfaction of the law or it's false. This is not just about the love of God, like, oh, God loves you and say yes to Jesus. You didn't give the whole gospel. Some say that the only problem with mankind is they don't realize how much God loves them. Paul, in Romans 10.1, says, My brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. What has he been saying for nine chapters before that? Mankind is lost in sin. Mankind is under the wrath of God. Mankind is lost apart from Christ. He wants them to be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. The gospel must have the law. You are dead in your sins. You can't work your way to God. You are unable to do so it must have the blood christ shed his blood in our place to pay for our sins it must have love for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life must have faith you must believe but if you don't bring in the law people will not see their need for the lord jesus people will say well just say yes to jesus he loves you what why Tell them why. They can't save themselves. Their sin has them under the condemnation of God. There is a certain expectation of judgment on many hearts. And if you don't tell people what they're getting saved from, they will run to themselves instead of Christ. Just read and reread Romans 3, 21 to 26 over and over again that those who believe are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. It's the centrality of Christ, the person and work of Christ. Christ is the end of the law. See Christ, believe in Christ, receive Christ. His sovereignty enables your belief. In John chapter one, verse 12, it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can read the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 and over and over again. In verse 2 and 3 and 6 and 9 and 10 and 20, he's saying, Father, those you have given me will come to me, and I want them to behold your glory, and you love me from before the foundation of the world. And, 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 and Ephesians 1 says, we in Christ were chosen before the foundation of the world. But you must believe. If you reject Christ today, your sins are still on you. But if you are today saying, I am condemned under the weight of my sin. I am ruined by my sin. If, I, if you say I'm, I'm stained by my sins, you need to know what the Bible says. All manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. But if you res- refuse Christ because you think you can be good enough and your heart is so proud, you will not have Christ. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. The blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin. Spurgeon said this, this is the glory of the gospel, that it is a sinner's gospel. Before I was a Christian, if you would have come up to me and said, you're a sinner, I would have said, how dare you call me a sinner? I think I'm better than you. This is the glory of the gospel, that it is a sinner's gospel. Good news of blessing, not for those without sin, but for those who confess it and forsake it. Jesus came into the world not to reward the sinless, but to seek and to save that which was lost. So whoever is lost and far from God, who who draws near to God through Christ, believes in Christ, You will have the righteousness of Christ and it will be bestowed upon you and you'll know that you are guilty but Christ is perfect. Jesus gives righteousness to the guilty. He gives righteousness to the unrighteous. He, the just one, died for the unjust. Righteousness only comes through Christ. Uh, The Jews were ignorant of that. Are you? Believe in Jesus. He is the end of the law for righteousness to the very unrighteous, the sick need a physician. Those who think they're fine won't have Christ, but all who believe will. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And here's what happens in your life when you come to faith in Christ. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, you follow Christ. It's not easy believism. It's not just praying a prayer. It's not cheap grace. It's where you say, I'm yielding my life over to Christ. I'm gonna follow him. I'm gonna love him. I'm gonna obey him. I'm part of his family now. I'm gonna rest in his grace and his mercy and his love. I'm gonna live for his glory. What happens when you get saved by Jesus is your life begins to show that what you say you believe gets backed up by real living and, and, and it's genuine and it's real and it's from God because you got the gift of faith and, and you know that Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith and you live trusting Jesus because he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You can't be saved apart from him. Do you know how many people will actually profess to know Christ but talk generally about God and never bring up the name of Christ? 
that denies the gospel. No Jesus, no gospel. Everything goes through Christ. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. He knew he was forgiven. He was justified. He was reconciled. He was adopted. He was pleasing to God now. He was alive. He was risen with Christ. By the way, if you're a Christian today, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now. And you get to Romans 8, 1, and you say, wow, there is therefore no condemnation for me. Christ dealt with my condemnation. There is none. I am alive in him. He is my righteousness. I am a debtor to mercy alone. I have a new birth certificate. I have a new identity. I have a new name, a new life. Because the God-man won the victory over my cosmic treason, and he makes his enemies his friends. Christ is the end of you trying so hard to be accepted by God. Paul says, I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed to him until that day. His very soul. Well, what does that do to us? You take 10-4 and you're like, okay, I can't just hear that and and walk away and say, well, I've got what I need. Now I'm going to go ahead and live as I jolly well please. How shall we now live? And what does this mean for the church? American Christians are, are so guilty of acting like independent contractors and going, you gave me what I needed to hear, now I'm going to go on and do whatever I want. Should this verse generate an emotional response in us? Should, should it generate any kind of outward response that would be observable enough? Should it affect our fellowship as a local church? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. All of that. So you must take this one verse in the context of all of Romans and all of the Bible and God's salvation program and realize a couple things. Here's Paul, who was a persecutor of the church in his previous life. He hated the church because he hated Christ. And he, here is the surprising one who, wrote, who, got to, who got to hear these words and write them at the Holy Spirit's direction. He was gratefully included in those who believe. He knew how indebted he was to grace. He knew what he had. And then you have to see what Paul has been getting at in Romans all along. So many people will say, oh, I know what Romans is. It's just all about theology. There's some amazing theology in Romans, but it is all about people getting saved by Jesus and being formed into the body of Christ. And what he's been getting at in chapter 9 and now into chapter 10 is that Jews and Gentiles alike are united in Christ. What this should do is get deep down into our soul and give us awestruck wonder at the Savior and drive us towards unity as a church. What are the things that, that keeps you know, pastors and elders asleep at night? Whether the church is unified and whether we're on mission for Christ. This should affect, 10-4 should affect the way we live in Christ and, and operate with fellow Christians. I mean, how often do we take people to task because we just don't like them? Or, or their free choices. And we get really legalistic about life or the way we don't like the way they process their faith or, or we don't like their personality. It doesn't mesh with us. 
And, and, and you kind of live like, I'm not going to accept certain people. This is what sin does. It separates people according to preference and performance. Christ doesn't. I want you to notice this verse says, all who believe, to all who believe. He's talking about a unified church that goes deeper than friendship and is family. So warts and all, we accept one another. And we stop making human distinctions based on human sinful attitudes. And, and we're not working for our acceptance anymore. So we don't have to act so harshly towards people and basically say, well, they're never going to get my acceptance. I'm thinking out loud here, but you want this to affect your life. You, you, in, you internalize this, you will be embracing and living the message of Romans. It will lead to something very specific to a humbled church that exalts Christ. The gospel humbles us. Gospel exalts Christ. And it will lead to a unified church that is on mission for the gospel. And a unified church is not judgmental, it's not legalistic, and it's not licentious. The gospel unites people. See, when you understand God's grace, you understand that you try as hard as you can to earn your way to God, that will never work. You understand that you, you are accepted in Christ, and guess what it does to your relationships? You stop comparing yourself to other people and you stop competing with them. You realize, I have no righteousness of my own and the same righteousness I have is the same one all my brothers and sisters have from Christ, earned by blood. So you, you, you say, I'm gonna cooperate instead of compete. I'm gonna stop earning my salvation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna extend grace, not, not a grudge, not judgment. I'm gonna have gratitude, not gossip. I'm gonna stop justifying myself. I'm gonna stop comparing myself to others. I'm gonna stop delighting in the fall of others. I'm gonna engage in worship, not worthlessness. I'm gonna engage in witnessing for Christ, not worldliness, because this is what the gospel does to all who believe. It ignites your unity in Christ, it ignites witness in Christ. Uh, where you're passionate about Jesus and you proclaim the gospel of Christ, you're grateful that you're uncondemned. So you just crave unity of the body because you don't want to be conformed to the world. And you bravely witness because, hey, I'm unashamed of the gospel. This is the visible outworking of the letter to the Romans, fixed on Christ's righteousness revealed in the gospel and given to those who believe. We laser beam on the gospel unity and gospel mission. I'm going to close with just a really quick story uh, a guy named Vernon Grounds told the story about a, a monastery uh, in, in Madrid, Spain, near Madrid, Spain, where the kings of Spain would be buried. And, and this architect designed this, this really wide arch that was so flat, the reigning king insisted that it's going to break under the weight of the building above it. And so the architect protests and says, no, it's strong enough. But the king says, no, we're going to put a column underneath the arch as a safety precaution. So after the king dies, the architect says, you know, I made that column a quarter inch too short. And that arch has never sagged one bit. Now you think of the finished work of Christ at Calvary that can bear the weight of the world's salvation and never move because Christ took the full weight of our sin at the cross. What was Christ's cry from the cross it is finished it's related to the same word where it says christ is the end of the law 
telos. The goal was reached. The goal was accomplished. And because our redemption is perfectly finished, it's impossible for us to to add even a sub-microscopic amount of our work to what was already done on the cross. So we can rest our eternal hope all on Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that this verse, this one verse, tells us how trusting in Jesus Christ and his finished work ends our attempts to be accepted by our futile works. And Lord, that just thrills our hearts. And we want to praise you with everything we've got. We pray, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.